Don't want to work forever? Once you can cover your living expenses with passive income, your day job becomes optional and you reach financial independence. You then have complete control over your time, your money, and your life in general. Spark Rental founders Denny Suplee and Brian Davis, me, are here to help you build rental income, ditch your day job, and do what matters most to you. So on that note, let's jump into today's episode, which, like all of our episodes, was recorded live. Hey guys, Brian Davis here from Spark Rental, and I am super excited to have Ken G on with me today. Ken G has over 24 years of experience in real estate, banking, private equity, uh, principal investing. Uh, he's been involved in over $2 billion worth of real estate transactions in his career, which is more money than I am likely to ever put my hands on. So <laughs> on that note, uh, Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. So, Ken, let's rewind the clock to the very beginning and talk about how you got started in real estate, your, your first deal. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really weird how I got started. I actually, it, it, isn't, uh, it wasn't real estate that uh, got me there. So I grew up in, in a small town in Toledo, in Ohio, called Toledo, got my undergraduate there, moved to Cleveland, Ohio, got my graduate degree there, and started a family. So here's where the real estate part kicks in. So it was my second child, my daughter. It was the middle of the night one night. I used to, I worked at Deloitte as a CPA. So I was working a lot. So the, the only real time I got to spend with my kids was in the middle of the night. Uh, <laughs> I would do their feedings and things like that. But it was really cool because it was really quiet. Everybody's sleeping. It's just her and I in there in a rocking chair and do, you know, doing the middle of the night feeding. Except one night, suddenly I started to get frustrated because I realized, wait a minute. First of all, I'm a dad now. Uh, I have a family and I th think I'm doing all the right things, but I don't seem to be getting ahead financially. And it started to frustrate me because I wanted to put them through. I wanted to put both her and her brother through school without racking up a ton of debt. I wanted to, you know, provide a lot of things for my family. I wanted to stop working so much. I didn't like working 80 hours a week, but I just, <laughs> I just couldn't figure out how I was going to make that happen. So I woke up the next day and I said, you know what? I need to fix this problem. Because I don't want to continue like this, never seeing my kids and things like that. So I had done a little bit in real estate, but I really got focused. I said, all right, I got to figure this out. And uh, a lot of my clients at Deloitte were making a ton of money in real estate. Before that, I was a, a commercial lender for five years. A ton of my customers made tons of money in real estate. I said, all right, this is what I got to figure out. So I got enough guts to buy a total of three small apartment buildings. Like Each one was in the 20-unit range. And three years later... I sold those buildings for, and this is the mind-blowing part, back in 1997, or it was just shy of the year 2000, I sold those properties and made over half a million bucks. Wow. So for the first time in my life, I, I had a half a million dollars in the bank. And I thought to myself, wow, th this is crazy. And I'm still working at Deloitte. And I'm not making that kind of money at Deloitte. <laughs> so, so I said, uh, uh, you know, before, I, I couldn't figure out how I was going to put my kids through school. I, I couldn't figure out how I was going to be able to quit my job someday. And so now I not only had a plan, but I had a plan that I knew was going to work. So fast forward now, you know, 25, 24, 25 years, you know, I'm thrilled to tell you, I have been able to put my kids through school. We have helped hundreds of investors do the exact same thing uh, that we've done by, you know, through investing in our deals. And, uh, you know, here we are today, um, you know, all of the, all of the goals accomplished. And I now, 
uh, I'm really focused on helping uh, make sure that I have the same impact on other people's lives. So you, you bought a couple of small apartment buildings in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. How did you scale from there? You know, what, what changed in your strategy? Yeah, so the first 10 years of the business, uh, we were in Cleveland, Ohio. It's a, not a growth market. We would do small value-add deals. And I mean, Cleveland's a hard market to make money in because there's not a lot of growth in Cleveland, right? I mean, it's a great town, but it's just not a lot of growth. And so, you know, we would do, you know, a couple deals here and there. And about 15 years ago, I said, wait a minute, you know, I'm doing well in Cleveland and it's hard. What if I went to a market that was actually growing? Yeah. A place where people really wanted to live. So, uh, you know, I said, all right, we're going to Florida. I didn't move there, but I started, you know, doing my on the ground due diligence, getting to know the markets, networking with the brokers. I mean, it took me a long time. And we set up shop in Florida. And the way we really started to scale was through syndication. Because when I was doing it on my own or with one partner, you really have limited uh, equity, right? You can only grow sure. so fast. And you only have so much money to invest. Right. You only have so much money. So you can only buy so much real estate. And so it wasn't until, you know, I felt like I, I didn't want to ask for other people's money until I had enough experience that I felt good about doing that. Because, you know, if it's if I lose my money, I'm cool with that. But if I lose your money, that really is not cool. So it was important to me that I have a pretty good grasp on the business. And uh, it was that syndication model. Now we've actually flipped to the fund model. We can talk about that if you want. But is a syndication, you know, using other people's money to grow a real estate uh, business that is done very, very well. All right. So in the your early syndications, you would go out and get commercial financing, I assume, for these deals. And then you would raise the a lot of the rest of the money from passive investors, probably starting with friends and family who you knew. You got um, it. Yep. Any tips for people who are considering becoming real estate syndicators? Yeah. So uh, the number one, you know, the, I have conversations with investors every single day. And the number one thing that they would need and, and want out of their syndication partner is is that you know what you're doing and they can trust you. And so if you're going to go into the syndication, well, remember, I waited 10 years, right? I don't know that your first deal that you do in real estate should be a syndication. Definitely right? shouldn't be. <laughs> that doesn't feel like that's right. It doesn't feel good, right? And so yeah. the number one piece of advice I have for people is learn as much as you can, as fast as you can, because what you want to do is you need to be in, you need to be very comfortable having a conversation with an investor. And there's not a question that he or she can ask that you don't have a deliberate, well thought out answer for. See, the more I call it knowledge builds confidence. That's my little saying. The more you can understand about the business, the more comfortable you are, the more things that you do deliberately based on what you know, when investors come to you and ask you questions, why are you doing this? How are you going to make money here? What's the plan? You have a very well thought out answer and you're very comfortable with that. And not, you know, not learning as much as you can or going to the syndication world too fast can really put you in an uncomfortable situation. And if you know the syndication market, I mean, you're going out, you're going to find the deal, you're going to lock it down with some of your own money, and then you got to go raise the money. Well, you have a finite time period there, and you really can't afford to have slip-ups there, right? You've got to be on your game and ready to go and, and know your stuff. So that's the number one piece of advice. It's just become as knowledgeable as you possibly can, because most investors will figure out whether or not you're the guy or gal 
that can uh, that they can trust with their money. Yeah, and you know there is a, a a steep learning curve with real estate investing. You're going to make mistakes, um, and to your point, uh, you want those mistakes to be on your own private personal deals and not <laughs> with other people's totally money. Fair. It's totally uh, fair. So you know, again, I I have always found that you know I I learn the most from those mistakes that that mm-hmm. I've made uh, as opposed to the successes. So sure. I always love to ask people what mistakes have you made in the, in your real estate investing career that, that you learned a ton from and that ideally novice investors or, or intermediate investors can learn from those mistakes that you made instead of having to go out and make them for themselves? Sure, sure. So, you know, I have made, in 25 years, I've made lots of mistakes. I mean, there's Me no too. question about that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we don't probably have enough time in the show to, to go over all of them. But, you know, one of the ones that kind of, I have this conversation a lot. We do some third-party management as well in our markets. And uh, this, this conversation comes to mind almost every single time. So it, most people want to buy the property and they want to fix it up and they want to make it nicer. And what they want to do is the moment they close, go full speed ahead with their renovation plan. Well, my mistake that I made a long time ago was doing exactly that. But here's what really happens as a practical matter. You do your due diligence. You think you know the property. You revise your business plan and your renovation plan based on that. Then you close. Now you have full access to the prop access to the property because it's yours. And guess what? You learn things. You learn things that you didn't know before. So what I want investor or what I want syndicators to do or anybody that buys a property to just resist the urge to go full speed ahead on day one and just sit on your hands for a minute. A minute is either thirty days, sixty days, whatever is right. You'll you'll know when you feel like you know the property well enough. And here's the mistake I made a long time ago. I went full speed ahead with my renovation plan, spent all my renovation budget, only to learn something a little bit later about the property that I wish I would have known because now I need to fix it and I didn't, I, I've spent all my money. So right. now I'd reach into my own pocket to pay for those renovation, those costs. And I could have just as easily diverted some of that renovation budget to that issue. I don't even remember what the issue was now. It's been so long. But I see people doing that all the time and they always, you know, they push back really hard. They're like, I want to get going. I want to get going. Some things you can do right away. Like if you know the roofs are leaking like a sieve, then go ahead and get on that right away. But you want to save some of your money to figure out you're going to learn things. I guarantee you you're going to learn things and I guarantee you you're going to revise your renovation plan and don't make the mistake that I did a long time ago. And that is spend all your money and then realize, daggone it, I wish I had some more because I really should have been doing this instead of that. Does that make sense? It does. Now, most of our audience are not syndicators, That most of them are either uh, single family investors or small multifamily investors uh, or passive investors in syndications. So as a syndicator yourself, how do you recommend that passive investors vet real estate syndicators and sponsors? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, over the years, I've kind of developed four rules. I think about this a lot because I think uh, this private money market that we find ourselves in, right, and that investors now have access to is really cool. It's going to continue to grow, but it's really important that investors know how to how to, how to vet sponsors. I just, it's one of my really uh, passionate topics that I talk about all the time. So I the most important rules. thing that they know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it is. And when you think about it, I want, I tell people, I want you to follow four rules. 
as a potential investor. If you follow these four rules, you will probably weed out most of the ones that you shouldn't be investing with. I'm not saying they're bad guys. I'm just saying you probably shouldn't be with. And number one, you need to make sure they have experience. You, you just do because that this is the business that you're investing in. Just happens to be apartments. It's going to have market forces. You know, there was a time when we didn't know we were going to have a pandemic. And then we didn't know we were going to have inflation, right? You need a senior management team in place that has enough experience to try to figure out how to navigate these things. So experience, although it seems obvious, it is really, really important to me, right? Number two kind of goes along with that. And that's your track record. Right. You got to have a good track record. I think you got to be transparent with that track record. We actually brought in a company called Verivest to audit our track record. So all 25 years of our deals are sitting out on Verivest site and you can see them. And they came in and we paid them a lot of money to literally audit those deals to make sure that when I say to you, here's our track record, here's what we made on every single deal, you know that it's legit because somebody looked at it. So I track record is super important, I think. Third is, and this one's a little trickier because I see people trying to figure this out. And that is you need to have a sponsor that's going to put you first as the investor. So the tricky part is, how do you figure that out? Well, you got to look at the terms of the deal, the PPM, the profit sharing, all that kind of stuff. And you want to ask yourself this one bottom line question. And that is, is it possible for that sponsor to do well and you not do well as the investor? If they're able to do well and you not, then you need to revisit that, that and look hard at that. Because in my opinion, the sponsors of the deal should be the ones to earn their bonus last. They shouldn't own it. They shouldn't earn it first. They haven't earned. They haven't. They don't. They haven't earned it yet, right? You need to do something a little above and beyond, you know, a six percent preferred return in order to be entitled to a bonus. That's my opinion. So put investors third is number three. Number four is transparency. And I, and I kind of alluded to this already, but you know, so many times I hear investors come to talk to us and they're they're frustrated because the last indicator. You know, after they sent their money in, they didn't, they never get statements. They don't return their phone calls. You know, don't do stuff like that. You know, we send out quarterly P&L and balance sheet and rent roll. And then we tell you every quarter and more often if necessary about what's going on on the ground. You know, how's our renovation plan going? How's our occupancy? How's our delinquency? You know, what's actually happening now? What did happen over the last quarter? And what are we focused on for the next quarter? And so it's that level of transparency. If you're in one of our deals, you have my cell phone number. And if you have a question, just call me. I'll answer the phone and I'll tell you what's going on because I, you know, I feel very uh, uh, strongly that you, you, you deserve that because you gave us your money. Uh, at least I could do is telling you what's going on with your money, right? So those four uh, things, I feel like if you follow those four rules, you're going to eliminate most of the people that are going to, that you're going to get hurt with. It's not, it's probably not perfect, but I, you know, those are four rules that you're really going to do well by, I think. I love that you give out your personal cell phone number to uh, to your your passive investors. That's great. Um, I want to dig into a little bit more into number three that you said about uh, verifying that the sponsor will put you as the passive investor first. So mm -hmm. you said that you know a six percent preferred return is is not good enough. Uh, you know, as that waterfall goes, uh, tell us what what you look for specifically in that. I mean, is there uh, a specific waterfall structure that you like to see? Is there a specific yeah. legal structure in the way that uh, capital is returned to people? What exactly do you look for uh, as 
you know, the, the hints or breadcrumbs that a, yeah. uh, that a sponsor will put the passive investors first. Yeah. So a couple of things. One, you want to look at the fee structure and you just want to make sure that it's not crazy. Right. I mean, right, like a high I, I, I'll, fee, I'll tell you yeah. what we do and it gives you an idea. Uh, you know, I've been at this 25 years. We charge a 1% acquisition fee, 1% disposition fee. Certainly not. I see people doing two and 3% all the time. Uh, the asset management fee is one and a half percent in our deals. Uh, most people do two or more. I, you know, what I, my message on fees is we need to be paid for doing work. It's not how, it's not why we're here though, right? We're not here for the fees as a sponsor. Right. So fees is the first thing I want you to look at. The second thing I want you to look at, and again, I'll analogize this to our own fund. In our deals, you get your capital back, your preferred return, and only after those two things are paid, do we get into the 80-20 split? Right. So if all you do in our fund is make 6% annual return, well, personally, I don't think I deserve a bonus. <laughs> I didn't do anything cool. I didn't, I didn't do anything that is extraordinary that deserves a bonus. So if that were the case, that's never happened to us, but if that were the case, we would have zero bonus. So that is how we put into practice what I mean by put investors first. Now, <clears throat> there are as many different waterfall structures and everything else out there as probably there are syndicators. I mean, there's so many different takes on it. Uh, the thing I will tell you is sometimes people just make this a lot more complicated than it needs to be. And I, and I don't know why they do that. Um, the last thing I want to do, if you're talking to us about investing with us, I don't want to have to spend a half hour trying to help you understand the waterfall. Right. That means I'm having a half hour discussion with you about something that we really shouldn't even have to talk about. Right. Make your, make your waterfall simple. It doesn't need to be that complex and help people to spend the time on understanding the deal and, and why they're going to make money and why you think you're going to make money on this deal. That's where I want people spending their time and energy, not on how do this, how does this waterfall work? If you were in this and I get that, but if it's that, then you get something else. <laughs> too much, too much, too much craziness. So that's, that's kind of how we put our investors first. Well, I love that. I want to get your take on our current environment, our current investing environment. So we're in kind of a goofy place right now where we have, high interest rates, we have cooling real estate markets, there's potentially a, a recession looming uh, in the next year. So how have how are you approaching this market? I mean, how has your strategy changed, if, if it has changed at all, uh, in response to this, you know, kind of weird market that we're in at the moment? Yeah, so really good question. So our discipline hasn't changed. Remember, let's go back to the experience rule, right? Everything we do in our business plan is very deliberate. I don't keep to mean to keep referring back to our business plan, but it, I, I use it to illustrate what we do and why. So we buy good apartment communities, right? We don't buy stuff that's vacant and everything else. We buy good apartment communities in growing markets, in good neighborhoods that we know that we can go in and physically improve and add value to, right? When we make them nicer, we can charge more rent. Now, let's analogize. Let, let's connect all those dots to the current situation that we find ourselves in. We like good neighborhoods. Why do we like good neighborhoods? Because we know in recessions, it's the lower income neighborhoods that get, just get hurt the worst. I wish it right, wasn't the true. high default rates. Yeah, it, it just is. It is what it is. So we tend to not stay in. We don't like those markets. We prefer 
to be in good neighborhoods. We like to be in growing markets. Why? Because if demand exceeds supply, we do most of our stuff in Florida and the Southeast, we already have a massive demand supply imbalance. So now think about, you said the housing market is cooling off. Well, what's happening is we have inflation. Because we have inflation, the Fed is using interest rates to try to beat down the demand. When you have higher interest rates, what happens to the home buyer? They're not able to buy a home anymore. So what do they do? They just added to that massive demand supply imbalance that we already have. They stay in the apartment. They stay world. as runners. Yeah. So it. So remember when I said we, in growing markets. So even if we have a little bit of demand fall off because of a recession, because you know son daughter moved it back in with mom and dad or boyfriend girlfriend right, household moved in together. Yeah. Yeah. We get a little bit of consolidation, but usually it's not much. So we're already, we have this massive demand supply imbalance going on and it just continues to support our value add business strategy. So we're, everything is pointing to us having pricing power because demand exceeds supply because of the market we picked, because of the neighborhood we picked, because of the type of quality asset that we buy. When we have a, a recession hit or something like that, it, it, it really isn't. I mean, this is multifamily, right? People need a place to live. That's probably not going to change. So now when we put our value add business plan, so when we look at deals, we're projecting three to 400 a month in rent increases, not organically. It's because we're going to go in and make it nicer. And we know because we've done our, our homework, we know what that nicer property will rent for. And so we're looking for that value add bump on top of an organically growing market and the returns just go nuts. Right. Forced appreciation, you know, forced, um, you know, market rent increases. So uh, looking over your website at KRIPartners.com, and by the way, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the comments here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was a nice chart that I appreciated there where you broke down uh, the, the two main pillars of your strategy. Uh, one being a little bit more conservative and one being a little bit more aggressive. The more conservative model being a, a cash flow model where you, you buy properties that are already cash flowing well and and you're just going to keep them stable. Uh, and the more aggressive model being the value add model, you know, sort of the glorified flip model where you go in and, and basically flip an apartment complex. Uh, but what I appreciate about what you've said just now is that even your, you know, quote unquote, more aggressive uh, value add model uh, is still on the more conservative side. Yeah. And, you know, looking at this kind of goofy market that we're in and, and the potential for a recession in 2023, you know, you're, you're still positioning yourself to win no matter what. That's the plan. So, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. That's what we try to do. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And, and by the way, I do, I, I kind of interrupt. I didn't mean to do that. But one, th one thing on our value add deals, I mean, we still have cash flow in our deals. If there's no cash flow in day one, we're not buying it. So we do, you still are going to get cash flow with our deals and we're adding value at the same time. So very, very important thing. It's just the buy and hold strategy, the buy, let rents organically grow over 10 or 15 years. Um, that's the, that's the alternative. And uh, we, we just don't do that very often because it relies on, you know, a lot of people don't, aren't that patient. Most investors <laughs> are not that patient. They love and the three to five years. And, yeah, and, and there there is something nice about going into a, a value idea where you have 
a measure of control over the returns. You know, if you buy a property that's already renovated and already rented at the max, um, you know, you just don't have any control over what the market does from there. Um, mm -hmm. But you're right. You know, you buy a, a you know an underperforming fixer upper, uh, then you have some control in in boosting those rents and the value of the property. Well, I, I want to be respectful for your time here, but before we wrap it up for today, I, I want to learn a little bit more about KRI Partners and you know what you guys are doing today. And you know, one question in particular, because a lot of our audience. Uh, are not yet accredited investors. Uh, do you mm -hmm. do any deals that allow accredited or non-accredited investors or is it accredited yeah. investors only? Yeah, currently we're accredited investors uh, only. And, and the only reason for that is that we do a lot of outward marketing. Sure. Um, you know, just being on this show, talking about our current fund is really kind of solicitation. And so we've always chosen the 506C route. Um you know, it's just what we've always done. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, accredited investors, I mean, it only takes a couple of deals to get you there. Uh, right. And then you get access to even to even more and large, maybe larger deals. So. So with your with your fund, it's a revolving door. People can buy in at any time and sell at any time. Or do you have, you have a minimum yeah. hold period? How does yeah, that kind of, yeah, it's kind of not how it works. So what happened is. We, we flip to the fund model. If you think about private equity, this is very much how private equity works. So we are in hyper competitive markets like Florida, and it's hard to find deals because everybody wants to buy there. So when an offer comes, you know, 10, 15 offers you're competing with. And if you're just another syndicator, right, the seller knows, hey, this guy still has to go raise the money. So I said, all right, you know, we have happened to pay up. We have to pay up in order to get the get awarded the deal. So I said, wait a minute, we need, I mean, the, the answer is right in front of us. We flip to the fund model. So rather than finding the deal and then go find the equity, we now find the equity, go raise the money, get the commitments. And then we go to the broker community and we say, hey, guys, we've we've raised 15, 16, 20 million, whatever it is, we're ready to buy. Those brokers go crazy and they will stop at nothing to find you deals. And what happens is you're the strongest buyer in the market now. Because sellers know that equity rate risk is off the table. They know that fund managers are generally more experienced. So, you know, in our last fund, the first deal we put in the fund never saw the market. It never got marketed. The second and third deal, we were not the highest bidders. So I know the fund, the, the process works and it works really, really well. And, uh, you know, from an investor standpoint, you got a lot of benefits like, you know, our last fund has a deal in. Tallahassee, Daytona, and Bradenton, all inside the fund. Like great diversification, great different building types, you know, so on and so forth. So, um, and I mean, there's all kinds of other synergies you get. You know, I only have to do one PPM, one operating agreement for, you know, for everything. I don't have to raise money three, four, five times. We do it one time and it's done for the fund. So lots of reasons that we made that switch to the fund model but it has proven to be extremely successful for, uh, for us. But these are still closed end funds. So when, when you sell off these properties, you just return the capital to investors. And when you, you sell the last property, that fund closes yep. uh, entirely. Yeah. Closed end fund. Yeah. So we still have the same limitations a 506 B uh, fund would have where it being 506 C. So you can't go out and just go sell your, your interest. It's gotta be restricted. And, uh, you know, you can sell your partner. We allow transfers, 
but it's not, there's not an open market for that. Right. So right. if you're in one of these deals and it's probably true in every syndication, I mean, you, you have to set aside money that you're willing to, to leave there for a little bit of time. Right. And let it do its thing. Right. It's going to take a minute. Uh, that's not to say that, you know, if, if you fell on hard times, I'm always happy to buy our members interest back. Uh, I, I love investing in our own deals. Obviously I invest my own money in our deals. So I'm happy, you know, when I can to help them out that way. So it's not like you have no way out, but it is, it is not like you go to the stock market and hit click a button and it's gone. Right. Well, Ken, any final pieces of advice for real estate investors, whether they're trying to buy properties directly or invest in real estate syndications, uh, any pieces of advice that you have for them, things that you wish you'd known 10, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah. Um, 10, 15 years ago, I would say, and I wasn't afraid of this, but I, I see this a lot. Make sure you're will. If you're going to be the syndicator, make sure you do the work, do the heavy lifting, do the underwriting, make sure that when you're on a conversation with an investor, there's probably no question they couldn't ask you that you wouldn't know the answer. Right. Make, make That's the number one thing that I see people. They, they don't want to necessarily do all the work because it is a lot of hard work, but look, if you're going to be in this business for the long run and, you really want people to trust you with their money. I, th I think you got to do that. So that would be the number one piece of advice. And then on the investor side, follow my four rules, man. Cause I really think if you follow those four rules, you're going to be in pretty good shape in terms of finding an investment firm to, to invest with. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great conversation and we really appreciate your time. You bet. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, guys, check out KRIpartners.com to see what Ken is up to, what his fund is investing in. And uh, we'll see you guys next Tuesday. Have a good one. Did you know we offer a free eight video course on how to reach financial independence with real estate? It's super bingeable with each video around 10 minutes long, but packed with information. Visit sparkrental.com slash learn for instant access. And please don't forget to rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. And we will catch you on the flip side.